0: What a year that 2020 has proved to be. It's easy to lift off some of the key events of the year. Coronavirus, bushfires, floods, the protests after George Floyd's death. But it's hard to get our head around just how big those events have been. The statistics tell you part of the story. Coronavirus, over 10 million people infected and half a million the bushfires, more than 20% of the Australia's forests were burned in the fires at the end of last year, including 80% of the Blue Mountains just outside of Sydney. 3,000 homes were destroyed, 33 people lost their lives and over 1 billion animals died. That's incomprehensible. The protests and riots after George Floyd's awful death spread to more than 60 countries around the world, demanding an end to racial injustice. There were over 2 million hashtag George Floyd posts on Instagram, over 21 million Black Lives Matter posts. The statistics are so overwhelming, so huge, that it's hard to really grasp. And being honest, I'm cautious about digging in too deeply into the impact here because I know that these events in different ways have been traumatic for many people and I'd spare you further distress. I guess what we can say though, is that we'd all long for something better. Where people aren't discriminated against because of their colour or their gender or their religion or culture. Where hundreds of thousands don't lose their lives to a virus running amok, where people's homes don't go up in flames, where fire doesn't threaten species with extinction. Don't you want for something better? Not just at that large scale, but even in your own life? Don't you want for something better? I know I do. I want an end to suffering and pain. I want an end to grief and to loss. I want an end to prejudice and selfishness. I want an end to loneliness and frustration. We want joy and abundance. We want contentment and trust. We long for justice, for compassion. We long for peace and respect. And not just out there in the world, though, wouldn't that be great? We long for these things in here, in our homes. We long for understanding and acceptance and love. What we want, whether we know it or not, is the Kingdom of God. What you long for, that for which your heart cries out and for which your spirit rages, it will be met in the Kingdom of God. Or your passion or your longing even all your grief and your sense that there must be something better, it's pointing you forward to something. And that something is the kingdom of God, in which God will give to all who want it lasting satisfaction and joy. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, that sounds good, but really, aren't we destined to a life characterised in the main by unmet longing, with maybe occasional moments of satisfaction? Aren't we creatures with longings for something more, who really just need to learn contentment with what is? Well, I say, no. There is a God, one true and living God. And He says, no, this is not all there is. Throughout the Christian Bible, He tells us that His kingdom is coming. And it's to His Kingdom that you're wanting for something better points. And that's what we're going to be exploring this week at Annual Conference. The Kingdom of God. What it is, when it's coming, how you can be part of it, and how it all hinges on Jesus. So let's get into it. We're starting on page 11 of the outlines. and It'll be really helpful if you could follow along with a Bible open, or if you don't have a Bible handy, Maybe open BibleGateway.com on your web browser. The Bible starts with a picture of God's kingdom. It's what I've called God's kingdom paradigm. The Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 is a model, a pattern of what God's kingdom looks like. Let's open it up in our Bibles and look at that together. We can group what we note in these chapters about God's kingdom under three headings there on page 11. First of all, God's people. Notice Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. Now, what did Adam, the man, and later Eve, his wife, what did they do to get into the garden? Answer nothing. The one true living God placed them there on his own initiative as an act of kindness completely undeserved. They're God's people, chosen by God as an act of grace, of undeserved kindness. And they're there in the Garden of Eden, which is God's place, the place He created for them. The Garden is a place of God's provision and His presence. Have a look at the next verse, chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance, and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God provides for their needs, trees producing fruit that's good for food, and pleasing to the eye as well. But it's also a place of His presence with them. If you jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 8, you'll see the Lord God is there with Adam and Eve in the garden. They enjoy His provision and His presence in the place that He's provided for them. So you have God's people in God's place. And third, living under God's rule. Three things we notice here. First, the Lord God is certainly in charge here. He's the one ruling. In chapter 1, when God speaks, the universe is created. He has absolute authority, commanding the universe. Let there be light, He says, and there was light. He commands just like a king, the king of the universe. He speaks and it is so. Second, living under God's rule means we receive his protection. Chapter 2, verse 9, we read that the Lord God provided the tree of life in the middle of the garden. It's not until a bit later, in chapter 3, verse 22, we realise the significance of this tree. It's the tree that wards off death. It's the tree that sustains eternal life and keeps our created mortality at bay. God protects Adam and Eve from all that would threaten them, even death itself. And third thing to notice here, Adam and Eve are to live under God's rule as worshipful image bearers. If you turn back to look at chapter one, verses 26 and 27, we see what sets human beings apart from everything else God has created. We alone are made in his image. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. What sets you apart from the dolphins or the chimpanzees or polar bears, or for that matter what sets you apart from the sun or the Andromeda galaxy or from the space-time continuum, is that you have been made by God in His image. And those other things, as wonderful as they are, have not. What does it mean to be an image-bearer? It means we're to represent God's ruling presence in His world. Ancient kings and queens would set up a statue of their likeness in different parts of their realm to represent their ruling presence. We're God's image-bearers. We represent His ruling presence for Him in His world. And you see that idea of ruling there in verse 26. They will rule the fish, the birds, the livestock, the whole earth. We rule for God, not for ourselves. Which means we exercise that rule for Him, towards His stated purpose, in His decreed way, reflecting His character. That's what I've called worshipful image-bearing. Because we reflect our recognition that God is king by ruling in a way that reflects his word and his way. We listen to his instruction, we follow his way. That's what it means to worship him, to honour him as the one true and living God. Mind you, if that's what life was like now, you and I wouldn't be longing so hard for something better something clearly has gone deeply wrong, and the Bible doesn't shy away from that. In fact, it provides a profound analysis of what is at the root of the problem, which brings us to point three on page 12. God's kingdom rejected. See, there's a rebellion afoot in the garden, an attempt to overthrow the king's authority. Adam and Eve are part of it, for their own good, God tells them to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yet they reject his word, they reject his way, and they eat of that tree anyway. Instead of worshipfully bearing God's image, they've made themselves the king. They've printed their own image on their T-shirts and rejected the one true living God as their king. That's what the Bible calls sin to rebel against the one true God by rejecting His word and way. But they're not the only ones involved in this rebellion. There's another creature at work, someone driving this rebellion, a challenger to God's rule. He appears in Genesis 3 as a serpent, a snake. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So here's a question for you, which would be good for you to chat about, maybe with those sitting around you or pop into your faculty Zoom. Why is the serpent described in verse 1, why is he described as cunning? What makes the serpent cunning? I'll give you three minutes to chat about it together and then we'll return. Welcome back. The serpent is cunning because he twists what God had said in order to deceive Adam and Eve. The serpent accuses God, hence his name in other parts of the Bible, the Satan, literally the accuser. He accuses God of being a liar. When in fact, just from reading the account, we know that it's the serpent who's lying and twisting what God has said. Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 44, he says the devil or Satan is the father of lies and has been a murderer from the beginning. The serpent appears here in Genesis as a bringer of freedom to Eve and to Adam. He wants apparently to set them free from God's restrictions and authority. But terrifyingly, his purpose is to destroy Adam and Eve, to murder them. Is there anything more disturbing than a murderer dressed up as a life giver? Like a doctor who murders patients, or a lifeguard who drowns those in need? That's the evil one, the devil. He is leading the rebellion against God the King. And Adam and Eve follow him willingly, preferring his lies, promising a fake freedom, rather than the God in whose image they've been created and who provides everything for them. It is actually a stupid choice, given the options. It's a tragic choice, given the consequences, but it's also a common choice, for we all do it. You and I make the same stupid choice every day, God's given us his word here in the Christian Bible. We know his way, the way he says is best for us, which will make us the most joyful, most fulfilled, most the way he's created us to be. But we say, yeah, nah. God says, love your enemies. We prefer the lie of the evil one, hit them back harder, then you'll feel better. God says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But we prefer Satan's lie. If you just earn X dollars per annum, you'll be happy. God says sex is for a husband and wife who've pledged themselves to each other for life in marriage. We prefer Satan's lie. Sex is for however consenting adults want to use it. And I could go on. God's word and way versus Satan's lie on how we speak to each other, on how we should treat the environment, on how we should treat the marginalised, how we use power, how we deal with suffering. We each make the same stupid, tragic choice every day. Prefer Satan's lie with its false promise of freedom over the wisdom of the one true God who loves us and has made us In his own image. And the consequences of this stupid choice we see all about us. That's why we see pain and suffering in the world, because we choose Satan's lie over God's word and it wreaks havoc. We're mistreated and we mistreat others. We suffer because of others' selfishness and yet we continue to put ourselves first. It's all there in Genesis 3. I'll leave you to read the rest of chapter three, where God lays out the consequences of their rebellion to all the players. It includes pain, physical and relational. It includes toil in our work and the bondage of creation itself to decay. It includes the reign of death, no more access to the sustaining tree of life. That's why we long for something more, because we've lost something. Things aren't the way they should be when God is king and we're living as his worshipful image bearers. But the thing we know about the one true living God is that he, first and foremost, is a God of love. And so because of his love for us, he's doing something about our predicament. God has been at work throughout history to restore his kingdom, and the Bible tells us how. It's the record of God's kingdom restoration project. You can see the diagram on page 12 under point 4. It represents the history of God's kingdom as revealed in the Christian Bible. It starts at the left with the Garden of Eden, God's paradigmatic kingdom. You might like to fill in the blanks as we go along. Then, with the introduction of sin, as recorded in Genesis 3, which we've just talked about, we saw God's kingdom rejected. The rest of the Christian Old Testament is represented by the rest of the diagram, moving from left to right. It's the account of God's kingdom restoration project. In particular, the way that the loving God moves his entire creation forward in his kingdom restoration project is by a series of of covenants, divine agreements, like a contract with conditions and promises, set up by God with human beings. They're represented on the diagram by the four arcs from left to right. And through these covenants, God moves forward his kingdom restoration project. There are four key covenants which we'll focus on today, and you can label them there on the diagram. The covenant with Abraham, about 2,000 BC. Then the covenant with Moses, about 1,400 BC. Then with David, about 1,000 BC. And then the prophetic promise of a new covenant, which was reiterated over a long period of time from about 700 to 400 BC. And because it's a promise of a new covenant, it's represented by a dotted line. So what we're going to do from here is look briefly at how God used each of these covenants to move forward His kingdom restoration project. In particular, in each of these covenants, we'll see aspects of God's kingdom under restoration. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So let's start with Abraham. If you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, we see all three aspects of God's people in God's place under God's rule. Let me read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Notice there's the promise of God's place. God is going to give Abraham a place to live. I will make you into a great nation. There's the promise of God's people. It's not just Abraham, who's chosen by grace to be God's person. From Abraham and his wife Sarah will come a whole nation of people who are similarly chosen for no other reason than God's kindness. And they're chosen as the means through which God will restore His kingdom. That's the meaning of the next bit, still there in verse 2. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing... I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's God's Kingdom Restoration Project. All the people on earth will be blessed through Abraham. This is a covenant with a universal scope, but focused through Abraham and the nation that would come from his descendants, the Old Testament nation of Israel. And notice God is exercising his rule here in the promise to Abraham. He promises to protect Abraham, to bless those who bless him and to curse those who treat him with contempt. And then we read verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. There's the other part to God's rule. Abraham is being a worshipful image bearer by being obedient to the Lord's word and way. So we see all three aspects of God's people in God's place under God's rule here in this covenant established with Abraham. And if you want to deepen your understanding of that covenant, you can read the extra details God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and chapter 17. The next covenant, which builds on the covenant that God established with Abraham, is the covenant God establishes with Moses and the people of Israel. You can read about it in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. The descendants of Abraham have become a large people, the Israelite nation, and in fulfilment of his promise to Abraham to give them the land of Canaan, God rescues the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, and he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And there God establishes another covenant with them. Here's part of what God says to them in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Notice there God's rule. He's protected his people from their enemies. He continues, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And notice this next bit. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. God introduces kingdom language. Israel will be God's kingdom of priests. So my second question for you tonight. What would a kingdom of priests do? Why have a whole kingdom of priests? Take 3 minutes again to throw throw around some ideas with those around you or have a chat in your faculty Zoom. A whole kingdom of priests. It's quite a strange idea. What do priests do? Well, they mediate between God and the rest of the people. They represent the people before God and they communicate on behalf of God to the people. The whole Israelite nation was to be involved in this priestly activity. They were to be priests for the one true living God to the rest of humanity, to all the other nations. And all of humanity was represented in a way in them. And then they announced God's word and way to the world through what they said and did. Well, to put it another way, there are to be a kingdom of worshipful image bearers within God's world. Now, if they're a kingdom... The obvious question is, who's the king? The answer, of course, is that God is king. He's always king. I'll leave you to look up Psalm 99, which talks about God reigning over the whole earth from within the temple in Israel. Israel was to be a different sort of kingdom to every other nation. It was a kingdom without a human king. And that was a sign to the rest of the world that the God that Israel worshipped was the true king over everyone. Now that arrangement did not end up being satisfying for the Israelites. They wanted a human king so that they would be like every other nation. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 8 where God says that the Israelites' demand for a human king was a rejection of him as their king. It seems that the the same problem that we saw back in the Garden of Eden, that humanity rejects God's kingship, it's still very much at play. Once again, God's kingdom has been rejected. But in his kindness, God grants their request, which brings us to the covenant with David. David is chosen by God to be his king over the people Israel. But God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The new promise to David is that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God's kingdom will, forevermore, have a human king on the throne, a descendant of David. Now that doesn't mean the king can just do whatever they want. The king is God's king over God's people. He's to be a worshipful image bearer. And so if you look up Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 to 20, you'll see that the king is to write out by hand a copy of God's law. He's to keep it with him and read from it all the days of his life so that he might know how to live as one of God's people. God is still the king. I want to pause there in our rapid overview of God's kingdom restoration project to notice something. We've already seen that we can describe God's kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule. But how does God establish his kingdom? What does he do to bring it about? Well, I think we can summarise what we've seen in the diagram on page 14. To establish his kingdom, God does three things. First, he wins a victory for his people over their enemies, represented in the picture by that scary lion there. We saw this when God defeated the Egyptians to bring the Israelites out of slavery. Or when God defeats the Philistines under David. Psalm 47, which I've listed there, celebrates God subduing the nations under Israel's feet. Secondly, he establishes justice amongst his people. God exposes and judges the wicked, those who continue to reject his word and way, and he lifts up the righteous. You see this in the law that God gave through Moses and in the way the kings in Israel were to administer justice according to God's law. Psalm 146 praises God for upholding the cause of the oppressed in Israel, for giving food to the hungry, for setting the prisoners free, for watching over the refugee and for sustaining the orphan and widow. And third he grants an inheritance to his people. The main inheritance referred to throughout the Old Testament is the promised land. The Deuteronomy 4 passage that I've listed there is just one of hundreds of examples. The land which secures their identity and their continued existence as his people, that's their lasting inheritance in the Old Testament from God. So this is how God establishes his kingdom. He wins victory, he establishes justice and he grants an inheritance. And we'll see that pattern repeated as we go on this week. But what happens after King David is not so good. Things start out well with David's son, King Solomon, but things go awry as Solomon turns away from God's word and way. And what follows then is a disheartening and tragic descent further and further away from the ideals of God's restored kingdom. As you can see from the diagram on page 15, the nation splits into two, into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, comes under God's judgment for continually rejecting his rule over them and then they're wiped out by Assyria in 722 BC. That's it for the northern kingdom. They don't reappear. The southern kingdom, Judah, likewise comes under God's judgment for their rebellion and is taken into exile by Babylon in 597 BC. They return to the promised land in 538 BC, but in a much diminished form. They never regain the heights of David and Solomon's reign, let alone see a full restoration of God's kingdom as he intends. Well, why is that? It's because the deepest problem has never been addressed. The sin that lodges in humanity's heart and causes us to reject God as king. The deepest issue in the establishment of God's kingdom isn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Romans. It's our sin and our willingness to follow the evil one rather than God. If there's going to be a restoration of God's kingdom, then that deepest problem needs to be addressed. But how? That's beyond the might of any earthly ruler. That's beyond my power or your power, no matter how hard we try, even in our own life. Looking at that disappointing history of God's human kings, it seems hopeless. But actually, there is hope have to remember that the one true living God is a God of love and faithfulness. He won't let his good purposes to restore his kingdom be thwarted. And so right when things in Israel's history were most dire, as they were languishing in exile in Babylon, God makes an announcement to the whole world. You can find it in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was the great ruling power of the day. He had a dream that troubled him. He didn't know what it meant. He dreamt of an enormous statue, dazzling in appearance. The head of the statue was made of gold, the chest and the arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron. But then, in the dream, a rock was cut, but not by human hands. And the rock smashed the statue to pieces, and the pieces disappeared with the wind. And the rock grew into a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar was worried about this dream. What did it mean? Well, God revealed the meaning of the dream to Daniel, who passed it on to the king. Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head of the statue. The silver, the bronze, and the iron parts of the statue are the superpowers, the kingdoms, that will rise up after him. But the rock that destroys them all is the kingdom of God. This is what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, fired clay, silver and gold? The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. Remember, this is coming at the very lowest point in the history of God's Old Testament people. God's kingdom restoration project has not ended, even though the people are stuck in exile. The one true living God will set up his kingdom and it will never end. There is hope. His kingdom will come. We get even more detail in Daniel chapter 7. There, Daniel is given a vision of the future from God. In chapter 7, verse 13, he tells us, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man, that is a human being, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. It's a name for God. And he was escorted before him. He, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Here is the everlasting kingdom of God given to a human being so that he rules over every nation for all time. It's the restoration of humanity's image-bearing role focused in this particular Son of Man. But when we read on in Daniel chapter 7, it's not just the Son of Man who rules. In verse 18 we're told the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom And we'll possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. God's people will be given his kingdom under the rule of the Son of Man. So as we come to the end of the Old Testament, whilst, whilst the physical kingdom of Israel is a pale shadow of its former self, the prophetic promise looks forward to the kingdom of God being given to his people under the rule of a Son of Man. Now, it's that sense of prophetic promise and expectation that gives you some idea of why people were genuinely excited when Jesus started his public teaching. Because what was his central message? The time has arrived and the kingdom of God has come near. Now, that's a good news announcement. That's a gospel But Jesus' announcement raises a host of questions. What will this kingdom look like? How will God win victory and establish justice and grant an inheritance? How will he deal with the ongoing problem of sin and the rejection of God's rule? And what does Jesus' announcement mean for us 2,000 years later? That's what we'll be exploring together for the rest of the week. I started tonight by suggesting that what we really long for, whether we know it or not, is the Kingdom of God. If George Floyd's death sickens you and you want an end to racial injustice in all its forms, then you want the justice of the Kingdom of God. If you want an end to environmental destruction and the abuse of God's creation, including our abuse of one another, then you want God's kingdom to come. If you want an end to all the things that assail us, to cancer and coronavirus and MS and the common cold and period pain, you want the victory of the kingdom of God. If you want to banish dementia and disability and depression and even death, then you want God to wipe out the enemies and establish His reign. If you want security and peace, if you want relational harmony and abundant provision of everyone's need, then you want God to grant us the inheritance that He has promised. You want the kingdom of God. Because only in God's kingdom is life finally and fully like that. That's why God's Gospel is such good news. Jesus tells us the time has arrived and the Kingdom of God is near. And that's what we'll explore together in Talk 2.